Well, you're clapping now, but you're going to hate me later. I already made this point last week. I have no additional point. I'm just screwing with you. That's all I'm doing right now, right? Because this song will be stuck in your head all day long. And it won't make you happy, right? That is, I told you last week, those are called earworms, right? They're these jingles or tunes that wiggle their way in through your, your ear and they get stuck in your head and they are on repeat and they drive you crazy. And I said that because we're in this series, we're wrapping up today, actually. This series called Lies We Believe. And these are not lies we tell each other, but lies that Satan has whispered to us and they've wiggled in through our ear. They're stuck in our brain. We hear them on repeat. And the problem is we not only hear them, but we believe them. And they are driving us crazy. Uh, I told you that if you believe a lie, it becomes your life. And that's because, no, I can't repeat that from last week. So we're going to let that go, okay? But uh, if you believe a lie, it becomes your life. And these things drive us crazy. They mess us up. It's like invisible baggage weighing us down, shaping our lives. It's a problem. And Jesus wants us to be free. Remember John chapter 8, that If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are to be set free by the truth. And so what we've done over the last four weeks is look at four different lies that we believe, and here they are. We began by looking at, I'm worthless. That's a lie. God could never forgive me. That's a lie. I'll never be a real Christian. That's a lie. And then last week, I will be happy when. And that's a lie. So God has been gracious to successfully speak against these. Now, in order to set up the next lie, I first need to talk about name tags. Because I hate name tags. Some of you know this about me. I just, like, sometimes we do an event here, you have to wear a name tag. I put one on just to set a good example as a pastor. But if I go to some other place, I ain't doing it. I hate name tags. When we launched what has become Redemption Chapel, at first we were a part of another church, and it was the habit they had that their deacons wore these name badges. They were like placards made of gold or something. You know, like, and I'm like, no, we ain't doing it. And so our deacons didn't wear them. I couldn't do it because I didn't want a, a, a business feel. I wanted a family room feel. Like nobody wears a name tag in your family room, right? And so, and so when now we got bigger and we were like, no, we've got to identify our deacons. We went with shirt. I'm not doing name tags, right? Like, just won't do it. But today we will do a name tag. So here it is. Hello, I am. You've seen these and you filled them in, right, and put it on. Right now in your mind, I want you to fill in that blank, but you cannot put your name on that line. You have to put something else there that identifies who you are. Most of you are Americans. And that means you probably put your job on that line. We as Americans tend to default to our job. And so here is this week's lie. I am what I do. I am what I do. And that has wiggled right in there and it is on repeat. I am what I do. You see, this is one of the first things we ask of people, right? Like out in the atrium today, you'll probably do do this. You'll meet somebody, say, hey, what's your name? And then you will ask, what do you do? What do you do? That's one of the first things. I'm guilty of it. We, we default to defining each other by an occupation. And so I will say, you know, somebody, hey, what's your name? My name is Rick. What do you do? I'm a pastor. You know the next thing they say? Oh, I'm sorry for cussing. 
Happens every time. I'm not kidding. Every time. It's, in fact, they usually cuss when they're apologizing. Oh, shiitake mushrooms. I shouldn't have cussed. Like, you just did it again, right? Like, it's, it keeps going on. And, and so it's, they just keep doing it. And so I always try to put them in ease. I, oh, you should hear my wife. Right? <laughs> again, not true. Another lie. But, but we ask that. What do you do? What do you do? And when somebody answers, we use that to kind of put them in a, in a box, in a category, right? We make a value judgment, how valuable, probably how much money they make, how valuable they are to society, how competent they are as an individual. And since we're doing that to each other, we also do it to ourselves. So we internalize that. And that earworm is wiggled in there and it's stuck on repeat. It's driving us crazy. I am what I do. And that is, realize, that, that's an I am statement. That's an identity statement. That, that is, your identity is linked to your occupation. And that's a lie. That is a problem. Now, to be clear, work is not bad. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is a good thing, which is great news for us as Americans. Because we are a very industrious people. We love to work. We're, we're work hard kind of folks. And work is a good thing. So if work is not a problem, then what's the problem? Well, the problem is that I am what I do is a statement of identity. Your job is not bad. But as an identity, your job is not good. As an identity. And that's because I want to help you catch why this is a lie, some of the downsides to this. So I am what I do is, uh, an, as an identity, is first unstable. That is a very unstable identity. Think about it. What if you lose your job? I, I understand sometimes people are lazy and lose their job. But a lot of times it's just changing the economy, layoffs, something, an employer, buyout, whatever. Sometimes you lose your job, right? If I am what I do, then guess what? You lost you. You lost your identity. You see the problem there? Or what about uh, changing careers? You change from one job to another. Did you change the core of who you are? If you are what you do, you completely change your identity. What about things like uh, folks who work an honest living at a crappy job, but they're doing it to make ends meet and to pay the bills at home? That's a dignified thing to do, but they don't, that person doesn't love their job. If I am what I do, then you are necessarily linked to your job. Sometimes you're just working it to make money for the fam. What about folks who retire? Retirees really wrestle with this. I am what I do. I tell myself that all my life, and then I retire, and a retiree doesn't even know where they fit in the world. Sometimes they just shrivel up and die because they have no place anymore because they bought this lie their whole life. I am what I do. Well, what about stay-at-home moms? Stay-at-home moms sometimes wrestle with this because I am what I do, but I don't have a paying job. Now, we all know in this room that being a mom is a huge, huge job. One of the most important jobs on the planet, and it's a very demanding job. It's a great job. But you'll see it worked out on social media sometimes where stay-at-home moms feel uh, defensive and they feel like they have to justify themselves. Right? And then what happens is the working moms, they, they respond in kind, right? And so they feel like they have to justify themselves and they feel defensive. And now they're battling it out. And you know what the problem is? Both of them are saying, I am what I do. Both of them are finding their identity in their job. So it's a very unstable identity. The next problem is that it is very, very possessive. 
That is a very jealous identity. It owns you. It possesses you. And that's where we get workaholism. There are so many workaholics in America. This is an American problem. Because look, if I am what I do, that is a demanding false god, an idol. That is a demanding idol. And I will sacrifice anything for that idol. My health, my physical health, social health, spiritual health, emotional health, sure, whatever you need. My family, fine. I'll sacrifice anything for that uh, identity. It's very possessive. And remember, work is not bad, but when it becomes your identity, you are no longer an employee. You're a slave. You're a slave. It owns you, and it is very possessive. Maybe you've run into this on social media, the idea that you are killing yourself for a job that will replace you within a month after you drop dead. You're killing yourself. They'll replace you. Sometimes the want ad hits the paper before your obituary. See the priority? And you're killing yourself for that job. Now, to be honest, this is a personal struggle of mine. You can pray for me on this particular lie. Because I am a pastor. And that's, a, that's an identity that has a lot of gravity. It sucks people in. It tends to suck me in. And I've got to be very careful with this. But, but look, let's be honest. If I died, you'd replace me like that and move on. And you should. Okay? Look, if we lose Jesus, we're in trouble. We can lose Rick and keep right on moving. You swap me out. You get somebody else and keep going. I'm fine with that. But then I've got to live with that. I've got to understand that. That I need to love my Lord and I need to love my church and I need to serve my church and give my church. But my church is never going to love me back. Not like my God. It's, it's a, not a good identity. I can't find it there. Right? It's too possessive. Well, and then a, a third problem is that it is destructive. Whether your job goes well or poorly, either way, it's going to be destructive. Tim Keller really caught this well. He said this. He said, when work is your identity, success goes to your head and your failure goes to your heart. You lose either way. If you're really good at your job, you're all egotistical. If, if you do poorly, it crushes you. And one of the ways you can tell if work has become your identity, there's some litmus tests. It, there's criticism, compliments, and competition. Those three. Can you take criticism at work? Man, if I am what I do, no. And the reason why is because you're not criticizing my job or my work. You're criticizing the core of who I am. I can't take criticism. That's a telltale sign right there. What about compliments? Good job, man. That goes right to my head. Puffs me up. I swell with pride and arrogance. Uh, That's a telltale sign. My identity is in what I do. Or what about competition? There are other people in my field, your field, right? You've got peers, competitors. Can you celebrate somebody else's success? Can you do that? If not, that's a sign that you are what you do and you can't share that limelight at all. Those are signs. And and keep in mind, it's not just paying jobs, but moms too, right? When you're a stay-at-home mom, and this, you'll see this on social media, all the competition and the mom shaming and my kids are great. And what, what we're doing, we're competing. Can you celebrate another mom's success? Man, I hope so. But I am what I do is so destructive. And, and then also it's unidimensional. 
unidimensional. So one blogger uh, wrote about meeting a French couple, asked the names, of course, second question, what do you do? And refreshingly, the French couple responded without even blinking, we are skiers. We like to snow ski. <laughs> Any Americans confused at that moment? Like, I think we, we're not communicating well, right? But, but they are not insecure. They're not seeking approval. They don't have a unidimensional life. They have a multidimensional life. There's a lot to them. There ought to be more to you than your job. Maybe you've heard this said that at a funeral, nobody reads a resume at a funeral. Whatever resume you're putting together with your job, nobody's going to read that at your funeral. When I, when I prep funerals, sometimes I don't know the deceased as well. And so what I'll try to do is meet with the family to get a sense for who that person was. I never ask the job. Here, here's some of the questions that I ask. I say to the family, what will you remember about her? Or what made you laugh together? What made you cry together? What was she known for? Tell me about her faith, her walk with Jesus. See, now you're getting a, a, a peek into a multidimensional life, not a unidimensional, because I am what I do is so thin, so restricting. There ought to be more to you. And then lastly, I am what I do is an identity. That's a lost identity. It's a fake ID. You see, if you believe that lie, you will have a job, but not a true identity. Okay, I can't talk about identity without thinking of born identity. You guys love the Jason Bourne movies? Absolutely love them. Some of my favorites, right? If you don't know, the, the premise is that it starts out where there's this dude with like super spy assassin mad skills, right? Like this guy is a force. And, and he has been shot and he's almost dead. He's recovering, but he's got amnesia. So he can't remember who he is. So watch this clip. I'm not making this up. These are real. Okay. Who has a safety deposit box full of money and six passports and a gun? Who has a bank account number in their hip? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sidelines and looking for an exit. I see the exit sign, too. I'm not worried. I mean, you were shot. People do all kinds of weird and amazing stuff when they're scared. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? Such a great movie. And, and as dudes, we all want to be Jason Bourne, right? I cannot even remember my own car's license plates. <laughs> I don't know, right? And I can run flat out at this altitude for half a second before my hands start shaking. 
But did you catch how he ended that, that little scene there? I mean, he said, how can I know all that and not know who I am? What did he know? He knows what he can do. He knows his skill set, his job, right? I, I know all that. How can I know that and not know who I am? This is a man who has a job but not an identity, and that is our problem. He does not know who he is. I am what I do is so insufficient as an identity because we don't know who we are. We, we bought a fake ID and we don't really have a true identity. And we need to recover that this morning. Now, as we've dealt with these lies one after another, what we've often found is that the world offers an alternative lie as a replacement. And we're tempted to kind of swap out lies and we realize we're no better off. In this case, the world does offer an alternative, but it's not really a lie, but it's only a partial truth. And what we're going to tell you from the world's perspective is, trade your identity of work for family. Right? James Dodson is going to hate me this morning. But uh, that, that you're, you're just going to go focus on the family. And there is the workaholism, that is an American problem, and, and we're sacrificing family on the altar of our work, and so we need to go back to family. Why? Because some of you have climbed the ladder of success only to find that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. And you're at the top of your career, you're nailing it, and you realize you've decimated your family, and your funeral's coming, right? And remember, nobody reads a resume at a funeral. The funeral talk gets me thinking about Stephen Covey's book, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Some of you have gone through this. It's a classic on leadership. and uh, we, we did it recently as a staff team, actually. It's a great book. In the second habit is to begin with the end in mind. That you want to begin with the end in mind. So what he does is he walks you through something that you, you need to imagine a funeral. And what you end up imagining is that you find out it's your funeral. You're imagining what your funeral will be like someday. And people get up to speak about you. Notice it'll never be your boss. It's your family. And they are speaking about you. And what do you want them to say? And so you begin with the end in mind. And then you reverse engineer your life. So the homework assignment he gives you is to write a life mission statement. It's a wonderful homework assignment. A great exercise. Because it protects us from workaholism. Because you, you've heard this, nobody gets to the end of his life or her life and says, I wish I spent more time at the office. Nobody says that. They say, I wish I spent more time with family. All right, we'll start with the end in mind, right? Nobody reads a resume at a funeral. That is really good stuff to speak into the I am what I do kind of lie. It's not a lie and it's not an alternative lie, but it's not the full truth. It is only a partial truth. You know Why? Guess who never speaks at your funeral? God. When people give eulogies, family members tell God doesn't give a eulogy at your funeral. You see, maybe the light bulb's going on. Stephen Covey was, spoke some truth, but it stopped short. He just stopped short. And God will weigh your life. God spoke before you were born. He will speak after you're born. He will weigh in on your life. He weighs your life in what he says counts. So what I want to share with you is I wrote my life mission statement. This is how it begins. It begins by saying, don't be suckered by the world's values. 
But live for the moment when you see Jesus face to face that you might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Imagine that. Imagine that moment that one day you will see Jesus face to face and you hear that. Now reverse engineer your life. Start with the end in mind. See, Covey didn't get to the end. He stopped short of the end. That's the end. And Covey's goal is to get your family to say, well done. That's stopping short. It's trading one taskmaster for another. So now your work won't be your taskmaster, but your family will. And that's still an idol. You have traded the vocational idol for the family idol. What we want is to hear God say, well done. He speaks before it all. He speaks after it all. You realize that God came before work and he also came before family. God comes first. That's the source of our identity. Now we're getting towards truth. Not partial truth, but full truth. And so we want Jesus to set us free with the truth. And what we're going to do is look back over the creation account it's, I mean, three chapters, so I'm not going to put it up there. You can look at it. It's in the very beginning of your Bible, the first three chapters of Genesis. And how it begins in Genesis 1 is God worked. God created. He was working. But then you get to Genesis chapter 2. You know what happens in the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2? God rested on the seventh day. God created the Sabbath. He instituted the Sabbath. Now what he did at that point is he said, look, the, the Sabbath is a day to stop working. That's when you rest, you relax, you recreate, you reflect. You enjoy what you've already created. You look back and go, man, that's good. I love that. That's what the Sabbath is there for. But notice something. God did the Sabbath first. Why? Did God need rest? Well, like, not like, like he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, Right? It's not like God gets winded, like he got out of breath and, whew, give me a day. Wait a minute. That's not God, right? So why did God rest? You know what God did in that moment? He made a very loud and clear statement. I am not what I do. Later he would say, I am that I am. He's just, I am. He is at the Sabbath saying, I am not what I do. Do you think God equals his work of creation? No, he is a creator, but that's one aspect. Like, he is so much bigger than that. He has an identity so well beyond that. God is not what he does, and he declares that on the Sabbath. And when we, we're made in God's image, and so we are called to work like him, but we're also called to Sabbath like him. And when we Sabbath, we declare, I am not what I do. I am not what I do. Now, later in chapter 2, then, God tells Adam to work. He gives him a job to tend the Garden of Eden. That, again, is kind of surprising. Like, it's like, God, you can't take care of your own garden? God spoke and flung the universe into existence. Well, like, why does he need Adam to work the garden? Can't God take care of it? Here's the thing. He, God is giving Adam the privilege of participating in the work of God. My son, Caleb, is now 19, and he, he's a big dude. I remember when he was just yay high. It was around that time that I ripped out a closet in our foyer to kind of open things up. And I said, hey, buddy, you want to help me? Put help in quotes, okay? <laughs> Do you want to help me? Some of you guys have done this. Like, you know he just got in the way, right? 
But he loved it because he got to put a hammer through the drywall. Like, I'm like, no, you can't. He looks at mom. Really? You know, like, mom said, yes. Okay, so he's, and he's having a blast. Now, what's he doing? He's participating in my activity as his dad because he wants to be like me. And I want him as my son to participate with me. Do I need him? No. No, I don't. But he gets to be like me. We get to be like God. God is productive. He calls us to be like him, to be productive too. And we are striving to be like him. And when we do, one of the big points of our work is we get to bless others. I hope you have a vision for your work blessing other people. You're like, well, you don't know what I do for a job. Listen, when I was a college student, I spent a summer out on the East Coast at Ocean City, New Jersey. I got a job that I could get for the summer. I worked at McDonald's. I flipped burgers and I had vision. Here's the vision. I'm feeding America. (laughs) Americans work hard. They get a little bit of vacation. They go to the beach. And as they did, they would drive by McDonald's. They'd get food. And I'm like, I am feeding America as they have vacation. That is wonderfully dignified. If I can have vision flipping burgers at McDonald's, you can have vision doing what you're doing. Your product needs to be blessing people. As well, your paycheck blesses people. Because you get to support a family, perhaps. But not only that, you get to support the work of God. One of the things it says in the New Testament is it says, let a man work that he might have something to give. Not to have, but to give so that you have money so that you can support the work of Christ, to be generous. So so your work gets to bless people. You get to be like God and you get to bless people. When you approach it in that way, all of a sudden work becomes worship. That's huge. If work can become worship, now, worship isn't a Sunday morning thing. You're not li- living this divided life. No, your whole seven days of your life is unified because when you go to work tomorrow morning, you're going to worship. To be like God, to bless others, it's a beautiful thing. That means then work is not identity, it's worship. But look at it this way. Work is not a source of identity, but an expression of it. You don't get your identity from your work, you get it from God. But you express your identity as a believer, as a Christian, through your work. Why? Because remember, God came before work. God also came before family. God came first. He will speak last. And so our identity ought to be in God. Now, to catch it by contrast, I want you to imagine in the garden scene when God creates Adam and he tells him to tend the garden. Imagine God said this. Speaking to Adam, he says, Previously, you were known as my image bearer, my special creation, Adam, beloved of God, husband of Eve. But from now on, you will be known, excuse me, from now on, lost my place there, where is it? From now on, you will pour yourself wholly into the garden. You will be known as gardener Adam. So you should strive to have the biggest, best garden. That way people will worship you and you'll have an identity in your garden, not in me. That'd be ridiculous. That'd be silly, God. You'll see, absolutely not found in Genesis. And nowhere else in the Bible either. Like, that's not in there, right? That's silly. That's silly. That's chapter 2 of Genesis. What happens in chapter 3? Well, basically, we assume that God did say something like this. And, and so what happens is sin enters in, and it ruins everything. We lose relationship with God. When we did, we lost our identity in God. Work got cursed, and therefore it became crushing and cons- consuming. Work became difficult. 
But the good news is that thousands of years later, at the fullness of time, Jesus would come and he would set all things right. So that we could say this right here. I am not what I do. I am what Christ did, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. That's our identity. Jesus came not only to save us, but to restore our identity. So let's, let's work through those three real quick. Spend most of our time on that first one. I am what Christ did. And that means salvation. Look, you know when Jesus hung there, he said, it is finished. Which means there's nothing left to do. So I'm not what I do. I am what Christ did. He finished it. It's all done. That's my identity as a believer. And then as a result, if I put my faith in Christ, then I get adopted as a son, or maybe in your case, as a daughter of God. That's our identity as a son or a daughter. In fact, Jesus gave us a great example of this. Do you remember in Luke chapter 3, we read about his baptism. And when Jesus came up out of the waters of baptism, the Spirit descended like a dove. And then remember the voice of God the Father from heaven saying, You are my beloved carpenter. He didn't say that, did he? You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. But you understand, for 30 years, uh, he was around 30 years old. Up until that point, Jesus has been a carpenter. But that wasn't his idea. Could you imagine as we read the New Testament, Jesus goes around all the towns and villages and gets introduced as Carpenter Jesus? You laugh because that's stupid. You'd say, you're not a carpenter. That's not who you are. You are the son of God. And you need to know something. If you are adopted as a daughter or as a son of God, if you're a Christian, then it's just as silly for you to define yourself by your occupation instead of by your sonship in Christ. In fact, Galatians chapter 4 bears this out. When the fullness of time had come, that's when thousands of years later, after Genesis 3, now we get to it and Jesus comes here is when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, means daddy, daddy, father. So, look at this last sentence. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Do you know what a slave is? A slave is somebody who works like a lot, but has no identity apart from the work. That's slavery. Are you a slave? You might be. You actually might be. You know what a son is? A son is one who has identity whether he works or not. So my son, Caleb, just graduated from high school. He still has his job that he was working through high school as a waiter at a retirement community. Could you imagine if I always introduced him in public as waiter Caleb? Could you imagine if I, as a dad, when I look at my I just I see a waiter. That's all I see. That's silly, isn't it? How do you think God views you? Think he sees you as a waiter? Or do you think he sees you as a daughter, as a son? You are what Christ did. He saved you, he adopted you. Now that is your... Your justification by faith, what he did. Now, secondly, you are what Christ is doing. 
That is your sanctification. What he is doing in you and through you right now. That's your identity. And then thirdly, you are what Christ will do. That will be your glorification when we go home. That moment where we see him face to face. And by God's grace, we hear well done. From whom are you looking to hear well done? Is it from a boss? Is it from a family member? Is it from God himself? Because that's our identity right there. I am what Christ did, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. You need to remember that God came before it all. God will come after it all. And so find your identity there in him. I'll give you an example that will maybe help, help you, hopefully help you wrap your brain around this. I think of our first responders. We have a lot of first responders in our congregation, firemen, cops, other professions that are first responders, great women and men who work hard, serve our communities. They do a great job. In fact, could we thank our first responders right now? They do a great job. They really do. But because I have the privilege of knowing so many of them, one of the things I've learned from them is that being a first responder, that has a lot of gravity as an identity. Like a lot of those men and women, I am, absolutely, that's their identity. I am what I do. But you understand it's short-sighted, right? There are no cops in heaven. It's not that cops don't go to heaven. No, I mean, they place their faith in Christ, they're forgiven their sins, they go to heaven, that's awesome. But when you're in paradise, there's no need for a law enforcement officer. There's no need for firemen in heaven. You see that? And so if that becomes your identity, it is so short-sighted, so short-lived, you want to have something that's bigger and broader and more eternal than that as your identity. That's why I'll end with this great quote from Pastor Tony Evans. He said, The great tragedy today is that we don't have enough Christians who know who they are. They may be genuine believers, but their faith is just another addition to their portfolio. When it comes to the bottom line, they define themselves in terms of their name, their job, their possessions, or the people they know. If somebody asks you who you are, and nowhere in the conversation did the name of Jesus or the kingdom of God come up, you are a confused Christian. As a member of the kingdom, your identity is tied to Christ. There should be no way to talk about you and not talk about him. Remember that name tag, I, hello, I am, in that blank? Would you love to have that moment back right now? You might feel that indifferently. Here's what I want to have happen. When you go to work tomorrow, I want you to go to work, but realize you are not your work. You are the work of Christ. You are what he did, what he is doing, and what he will do one day. I want you to find your identity in Christ and worship him all day long, all week long. And for that, let me pray. Father, it's been uh, wonderful to uh, be in this short series and just ask you, by your grace, by your spirit, by your word, to one after another, correct these lies that we have believed. Thank you for that. Thank you that we do not have to find our worth in what we do. And, and yet we admit before you, we, we do that all the time. Lord, we believe that lie that I am what I do. And we see right now that that is short-sighted and that is thin and that is weak and it's wrong. Thank you that you came first. Thank you that you 
You called us to participate in your activity, to be like you, to be your image bearers. We screwed it up, but then you, you saved us and you called us as daughters, you called us as sons. You're active in our lives right now, growing us up, and, and then we will go home one day, and Lord, we want to look way past our funeral to when we stand in your presence. And what you say matters. We want to begin with that end in mind. Find our identity in you. Speak into our lives, Lord. Correct those lies, please. And let us live this week as we go to work. Oh, Father God, I pray we go with renewed vision, renewed identity. We go with you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.